Thank you so much for that introduction. And there we go. Um, and good morning, everybody. Uh, so thank you all for waking up early to come and listen to me speak about circumcision. And I will say that I picked this topic because it is the the thing that I am asked the most about. Um, and that is not just in clinic or in the hospital, but also on the playground and at the bus stop. And even when I go to a party without my children and I think I'm free, no, circumcision really uh, is, is a hot topic, um, both in the hospital and in the community. Um, and so I wanted to start today by very, very briefly talking a little bit about the history of circumcision and some of the uh, kind of where we stand in terms of the demographics. And then starting to show you a little bit about some of the controversy that's been happening uh, over the last decade, uh, expose you to some of the things that are, that are floating around in social media. But then I really wanna spend most of this talk talking about some of the evidence behind the pros and cons of this uh, procedure. And then finish up with a little brief, just a brief talk about the care of the uncircumcised penis. Um, so it sometimes surprises me that circumcision has become such a controversy and such a hot topic because it is one of the most commonly per performed surgeries and it's been around uh, for thousands of years. The oldest documentation of circumcision is from Egypt in uh, 2400 BC and this practice continued in Egypt uh, until the time of Herodotus who reported that the Egyptians placed cleanliness before comeliness. Uh, we believe that the Jews adopted circumcision from the Egyptians. Uh, and it is interesting that some texts report that the Islamic prophet Muhammad was born without a foreskin, uh, which may be one of the uh, contributing factors to why a uh, majority of uh, Muslims are circumcised. Here you can kind of see a breakdown worldwide of circumcision rates. Uh, as you can see, uh, the minority of men are circumcised in Central, South America, and in Europe, uh, while the majority of men are circumcised in the Middle East and in parts of Africa. Uh, the U.S. is right in the middle, uh, between 60 and 75%, depending on the study. The most recent was about 65%. Uh, and this, this kind of in the middle range for uh, incidents of circumcision in our country, in many ways is reflected in the statement from the American Academy of Pediatrics regarding circumcision, which is a lukewarm statement. They really say that the health benefits of newborn male circumcision outweigh the risk. So not strongly pro, um, although they do say that the health benefits slightly outweigh the risk. Contrast this to uh, the UK, where circumcision rate is about 15% and the National Health Services does not provide free circumcision for non-medical indications. And when you look at literature from their physicians there, the attitude towards circumcision is very different. Um, they really put uh, more of an onus on the family to, to prove the medical need in the child's best interest uh, before performing a circumcision. So the, this uh, quote is out of a paper um, uh, uh, about the ethics of circumcision, sort of a guideline paper from the British Medical Association for their pediatricians. And they say that they feel they do not believe that parental preference alone constitutes sufficient grounds for performing a surgical procedure on a child unable to express his own view. So it's not surprising that with the, um, the wide range of opinions within the medical establishment regarding uh, newborn male circumcision, uh, that this controversy is spilled out into the non-medical uh, side of things. And in the past decade, we really have been, have a, a rise of anti-circumcision activists um, who are also known as the intactivists. 
And I guarantee if you, if you have not seen this group and you have not interacted with this group, I guarantee that your friends, your family, your patients' families, uh, they have heard from this group because they are all over social media, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and they're very vocal, they're very angry, and they use some, some pretty dramatic tactics uh, to sort of push their agenda forward. Um, and I'm going to show you some of these memes just so you've seen them. And again, these are everywhere. You know, when, when my group of friends was, was having their children, I mean, the, the, the mom wars about this were incredible on social media. Um, but male circumcision is equated with female circumcision. Uh, physicians are accused of operating for money. And parents are being judged for their choices if they choose to circumcise their sons. And so I really wanted to step away from some of the controversy and some of the drama and uh, look into some of the evidence that is that underlies the, the benefits and the risks of circumcision. And to get you guys as excited about this topic as I am, I even added a, a fancy uh, 90s animated GIF because, you know, that, that makes it much more exciting. Um, so on one side, we've got the benefits of circumcision, and those include reduction in UTI, uh, reduction in complications of the foreskin, reduction in uh, sexually transmitted infections, and penile carcinoma. On the other side, we have the risks of circumcision, pain, complications from surgery, medial stenosis, sensation loss, and the ethical implications of performing a surgery in a child who is too young to consent. So let's start off. Uh, circumcision with the goal of reducing the risk of urinary tract infection. Does it work? Uh, the short answer is yes. Uncircumcised males have more urinary tract infections than circumcised males. Uh, the number, uh, so about 32% of uncircumcised males will have one urinary tract infection in their lifetime, compared with about 8 to 9% of circumcised males. Okay. Um, so this is a meta-analysis, the meta-analysis uh, by this group um, uh, spanning Australia to Florida uh, finds that the number needed to treat is four. Most of, most of the ranges for that are a little bit higher, up to 100. Uh, I think that this more recent study outside of Stanford uh, finds the number needed to treat is uh, 37. And so just to put that into context, that is 37 circumcisions, a surgical procedure, to prevent one urinary tract infection. Uh, we know that the greatest impact appears to be in the first year of life. Um, this line here in green is the relative risk, lifetime risk of uh, getting a urinary tract infection, uh, uncircumcised versus circumcised male. Um, but when you break it down by year, you can see that that um, risk is the greatest in the first year of life and then continues to decrease with the age of the child. So why do we care about urinary tract infections? Well, there was actually a, a really fantastic study that just came in the, out in the New England Journal of Medicine that equates childhood pyelonephritis with an increased risk of adult end-stage renal dis disease. Um, so this is a study out of Israel, uh, looked at um, people, uh, looked at uh, adults who had had, um, uh, broken down into either uh, no urologic history, uh, history of childhood pyelonephritis, or a history of some sort of genitourinary abnormality at, in childhood. Um, and then looked at the rate of end-stage renal disease, and about 1% of people with childhood pyelonephritis and no other urologic conditions did go on to develop early end-stage renal disease with an adjusted hazard ratio of about four. 
This is a great study in terms of its scope. Uh, there are about 7,000 patients with childhood pilo, um, but in some ways it was also limited by that large scope. We don't really know much about those patients. We don't know um, when they had their urinary tract infections. We don't know what, uh, sorry, when they had their pilonephritis. We don't know the severity. Were they in the ICU? Were they at home? Did they sit at home for seven days before coming in and getting their antibiotics? We don't know what made the 1% who did go on to get end-stage renal disease. We don't know what were their other risk factors. Is there a reason those patients had trouble and the others did not? Um, so I think it's a great study. I've, I've been telling my patients and, and, and bringing this information to their attention. Um, but I think we have to be, be a little bit cautious about how we, whether we use this information to paint a broad stroke. And again, I have to kind of bring it back. We know that uncircumcised males have an increased risk of urinary tract infections. And we know that pyelonephritis has an increased risk of end-stage renal disease, but we really don't currently have the information that links the two. I cannot look at a child who is uncircumcised and tell them what their individual risk of end-stage renal disease is. And so while I think that this information is really useful when counseling families for or against circumcision, I think we also have to be very cautious about how we, how we use it. Okay, next benefit, reduction in the risk of foresight in complications. So to understand this, we have to understand what are the risk of having a foreskin, just having it, and um, how, uh, what are the complications from that, and how often are they occurring. So most of these studies are really observational studies that were performed in countries where um, the rate of circumcision is very low. Um, and it's, it, always this is tricky, right? Because um, these are observational studies, the length of follow-up is often very small. Um, and in some of these studies, so these, these, the three that I'm quoting here, we're, we have Denmark, Brazil, and Taiwan. And one of the tough things about this, the study in uh, Brazil is that they're, the, they acknowledge that some of the areas that were studied, the access to care is, is very poor. Um, and so it is not 100% clear whether the rates of uh, foreskin complications are, are accurate or not, but we estimate that they're about 5%. What are complications of having a foreskin? They would be phimosis, balanitis, tight frenulum, urinary tract infection, which we talked about, and uh, BXO, which is uh, uh, basically uh, lichen sclerosis of the glands and meatus in men. Um, after those complications, there was a medically indicated circumcision rate that ranged from about 1% to 8% of the population. And again, you know, this is, this is a, a wide range that includes uh, some areas with very poor access to care. Um, so probably the, the need for medically, indication, medically indicated circumcision is probably in the 5 to 8%. Next benefit, and this is the one we hear about all the time, is the reduction in rate of uh, HIV transmission. Um, and now we're kind of moving into studies away from the studies done in children and to studies done in adults. And I'm sure we've all, all heard about the studies out of Africa that are really finding very strong evidence that adult male circumcision uh, provides between a 40 and 60% reduction in heterosexually acquired HIV. Um, and this is a topic that, that is outside of, outside of urology and could, could probably span uh, a week's weeks worth of lectures, um, but, but that information has then been, been used uh, to kind of estimate what the uh, impact would be in the United States uh, in terms of neonatal circumcision uh, with our lower rates of HIV, and we estimate that a neonatal male circumcision would reduce lifetime HIV risk for U.S. males by about 16%. And again, this is a calculated estimation uh, based on the uh, African trials and the uh, American HIV rates. 
Um, I think it's really important um, when we look at this in context, the number needed to treat in terms of HIV is 298 circumcisions to prevent one HIV infection. But it's really important to remember that this number varies really greatly by race and ethnicity. Um, just because the, the rates of HIV vary greatly um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of race and ethnicity. And so the benefit for an individual patient uh, will be very different. And again, this is, this is important in terms, of, in terms of counseling the individual. Does circumcision protect against other STIs? Uh, essentially, yes. Um, it uh, has shown benefit for HSV, for syphilis, HPV, and chancroid. Um, and also, there has been some benefit in terms of health of women. And I know that's always very tough when you're counseling for a male patient and a male family, um, but the, this is from a, a, a meta-analysis that uh, showed a protective effect of having a circumcised partner for HIV, chlamydia, syphilis, um, cervical cancer and uh, cervical dysplasia. Uh, the, again, these studies are all really done um, in ad for adult circumcision or circumcised adults. And so the, the overall effect of male circumcision on HIV rates in women um, was really inconsistent uh, because there were some studies in which the HIV positive male partners returned to sexual intercourse before the surgical site had healed and then there was an increased rate of HIV in their female partners. So obviously we can't translate that to our to our neonatal patients but but this is why we don't really have uh, strong evidence in, in that area. Next benefit is a reduction in the risk of penile cancer and we've all heard about this. Um, and I think it's important when we're looking at penile cancer risk in terms of circumcision to remember that penile cancer is a very rare disease, even in uh, uncircumcised men. And so most of these studies are small, they're observational, um, and it's, it's tough to really get very strong conclusions here. Um, the incidence of penile cancer varies greatly because the risk factors for penile cancer vary greatly by country. Um, those risk factors include having a foreskin, hygiene, uh, HPV, and smoking. And so we go from Israel, which is 0.1 in 100,000 uh, because the circumcision rate is high and uh, hygiene is very high. And compared to Denmark, where we have uh, an incidence rate of penile cancer of 1 in 100,000 because the circumcision circumcision rate is low, and the, but the hygiene is very high. Um, and then compare that to Paraguay, which is just one of the examples, uh, for a rate of 4.2 in 100,000. Um, and in Paraguay, Paraguay, we have both a low circumcision rate and a low hygiene rate. So you can sort of see this very great range um, in penile cancer, but still a very rare disease, even in the worst of circumstances. Um, there's pretty good evidence that childhood circumcision reduces the risk of invasive penile cancer. It does not have any, any effect on carcinoma in situ. Um, but what's interesting about this information is that it is not very clear whether the, it is the foreskin itself that is the risk or whether it is phimosis and inflammation that is more likely to occur when you have a foreskin. Uh, because when these studies uh, tried to res uh, restrict their analyses to patients with no history of phimosis, there was no um, uh, uh, benefit from being circumcised compared to non-circumcised in terms of invasive penile cancer. Um, and we see this in the case reports in the literature that there are case reports of penile cancer occurring in patients who are circumcised if they have another um, uh, mechanism for inflammation. Uh, for example, buried penis from obesity, uh, which, which causes inflammation of the penis, uh, is now a recognized risk factor for, for penile cancer. 
So we've talked about the benefits, uh, urinary tract infection, complications of foreskin, STIs, and penile carcinoma. Uh, let's talk about the risks. So the first risk, of course, with any surgical procedure is pain. And I think it's no longer a controversial statement to say that infants feel pain. Um, and there is more and more growing evidence that uncontrolled neonatal pain may permanently alter pain perception into adulthood. And I think there's, a, there's been a really, really good move uh, recently in, in uh, pediatric providers and pediatric hospitals to, to try to avoid um, uh, infant pain and neonatal pain. Uh, there is also pretty good evidence uh, about what is the best technique for pain control uh, during circumcision. Uh, there's some nice uh, random, uh, not sorry, blinded video studies uh, looking at pain control during circumcision, and there was a Cochrane review in 2004, and they really found that dorsal penile nerve block, either with or without EMLA, was more effective for pain control than EMLA alone. Well, that's that's uh, pretty pretty uh, established. So how are we doing? So in 1998, a survey of circumcising physicians found that only 45% at that time um, were using analgesia during circumcision for newborns. And uh, that's 45% uh, and that includes pediatricians, family medicine, OB, and that's any analgesia. Uh, so pretty, pretty um, poor rates. Uh, in 2006, things are looking a lot better. 97% uh, of residents who were surveyed uh, reported that they were taught how to use some sort of analgesia during circumcision. Um, unfortunately, in that time period, only 81% were taught how to use the uh, dorsal penile nerve block, and um, only 32% reported using it always. Um, so we have to imagine that in 2018, you know, we're, we're a decade after this, we have to imagine these rates are much, much better. And certainly that's what I hear anecdotally, but I did not find any updates in the literature to, to prove that. Next is the complications of having surgery. And of course we know all, all surgeries have some risk of complication, even if it's small. Um, the worldwide median risk of circumcision complications is about 1.5%, but that includes uh, ritual circumcisions and circumcisions being performed by non-medical providers. Um, the studies in the US, uh, it's a little tougher to sort of get a handle around this, but we think that acute complications are probably 0.07%, mostly bleeding and blood transfusions. Um, and the late complications are at least 4.7%. Again, it is very tough to track these late complications because they can happen a decade after the circumcision and we don't have a really good marker of circumcised versus non-circumcised status. Um, but those complications, when we do track them, include redundant foreskin, buried penis, uh, cysts, skin bridge, penile torsion, medial stenosis. Um, I want to point out that 4.7% because you'll kind of remember back into an earlier slide when we talked about the risk of having a foreskin. Um, and these, these uh, rates are very similar. Uh, the risk of having a complication from circumcision, around 5%. The risk of having a complication from just having a foreskin, also around 5%. So, so very similar. Um, these complications I'm talking about are very small complications. They can be fixed easily. Um, some of them don't have any functional consequences, such as just having a redundant foreskin. But it is true that there are case reports in the literature that uh, talk about much more significant complications, including penile loss, penile injury, fistula, urethrocutaneous fistula, and yes, even a few um, case reports or some findings in which it appears that death was associated with circumcision. Um, the complication we talk about the most is medial stenosis, so I'll dive a little bit into that. Um, and certainly we see this anecdotally with great frequency. Um, but it 
again, this is a very delayed complication. It's been a little bit tough to nail down uh, the true incidence of this problem. Um, there was a meta-analysis performed, I think this is in 2006, um, trying to look at the um, uh, rate of maniacal stenosis after circumcision, and they reported a rate of 0.6%. But when you look at the actual studies that were included in this analysis, the, the length of follow-up was completely inappropriate. It was a few months to a few years, and many of these studies included children who were not even toilet trained. Um, so it's just, it's just the wrong uh, uh, group of studies to look at. Um, so unfortunately, we don't really have a good handle on the incidence of this. There, the highest rate I saw out there was from a um, study performed by some urologists in Iran um, who looked at all patients who were coming through their office for other complaints um, and looked for what they, deter what they uh, described as an uh, asymptomatic natal stenosis, but clinically significant, around five French. Um, and they found a 20% rate. I suspect this is an overestimate because you know this is a self-selecting population. They are coming into the urologist's office, and also these um, these urologists were looking for asymptomatic disease. And you can really argue whether or not uh, this is clinically significant. Um, so the the true incidence is probably somewhere between the two. But I think we just don't we don't really have good good data on that. Certainly, maiatal stenosis is something we can correct relatively easily with a simple procedure in the operating room. But I think it is important to to inform and educate our patients because it's not um, uh, this is this really is a, a complication of having no foreskin uh, that I think sometimes the the lay population is really not aware of. Um, the other risk that is brought up is sensation loss, and this is the risk that the anti-circumcision activists talk about a lot. Um, this is the aspect that they're that I think they're the most angry about um, and the most upset about. And this is the one risk that I, I, I just really want to say um, is not something that I bring up with a lot of um, uh, strength when I talk to families about circumcision. Because we have really tried to, to prove objectively that this is occurring, and, and to date we have failed. Um, so a number of survey studies, a number of meta-analyses have really been unable to show a difference in terms of reported erectile function or reported circumcision between circumcised and uncircumcised males. A, this is a nice study, uh, 2016, that looked at um, uh, sensation of males who were both circumcised and uncircumcised. They did find that the foreskin was the most sensitive part of the penis to tactile stimulus. However, there was no difference in glands or penile shaft sensation between circumcised and uncircumcised men. So while we are removing a sensate part of the male anatomy, it does not, in no way do we routinely seem to see a decrease in sensation in the rest of the phallus. Um, and so uh, certainly there, I'm, I'm sure there are people with individual complications after circumcision that have resulted in sensation changes in erectile function changes. Um, but I, I would really put that in the category of those rare complications like a urethrocutaneous fistula and not in the category of a regular expected consequence from having a circumcision. We also now have data from all of our adult studies in Africa that really are able to talk to men both before and after a circumcision and they really have not found any consistent significant loss of sensation or decrease in sexual function after adult circumcision. So again, this is something that I think is talked about a lot, but you know, I, I tell families that, that there are men who, come, who uh, feel that their circumcision is the cause of sensation and erectile function loss, um, but, but that we just we really have not been able to prove that objectively outside of those individual cases. 
The last risk of circumcision, I think, is really the, the toughest, and this is the ethical concerns of performing the surgery. Um, and, you know, we've been talking about newborn male circumcision and using those phrases, but I, I want to phrase this procedure in a different way. Um, in some ways, what we are talking about is the non-therapeutic, prophylactic removal of functional body tissue from an infant who is unable to consent. And I think that when you phrase it in this way, which is a perfectly reasonable way to phrase this procedure, um, this is, this, is a different, this is a different conversation we're having. Um, we talk about human rights uh, globally, and one of the fundamental principles of human rights is autonomy of an individual. And in many ways, this making this choice, parents making this choice for their child, is in violation of that human right of autonomy. I think this is why the British Medical Association, when they talk about the ethics of circumcision, really talks about how uh, parents have to frame their choice, not as a preference or as a desire, but in terms of the child's interest. Um, and again, I think that's, that's a, a really important thing to think about. This is becoming, in some ways, a tug of war between parental choice uh, in terms of making surgical and medical decisions for their children and a child's rights to make those own surgical and medical decisions for themselves. I can tell you that in pediatric urology where this has become a real hot, uh, uh, become a lightning rod, if you will, uh, is in uh, DSD or differences in sex development, which was uh, known in the past as intersex. Um, this has become a real uh, uh, struggle between defining the line between parents making medical decisions for their children and delaying those medical decisions until a child can consent. Um, I will say that I personally believe that parents can make informed, educated medical decisions in the best interest of their child and that I 100% can imagine an informed, educated parent choosing a circumcision in the best medical interest for their child. But I think that this ethical conversation uh, is continuing. I think that we have not heard the final, um, the, I don't think we have the answers in terms of where on this continuum we should be. And I think that it is, we, we should continue to have this conversation um, as a society and with our families. All right, so we've talked about the benefits, we've talked about the risks. And so now I do very briefly want, uh, so, and so in conclusion, um, I really think that, that where you fall in terms of the analysis of benefits and risk of circumcision in some ways depends on your values and on the lens in which you're looking at this procedure. Um, we talk about that when we talk about um, value analysis in, in any, any procedure, and it depends, you know, are we looking at this from a public health perspective? Are we looking at this from an infectious disease perspective? Are we looking at this from an, a child autonomy perspective? Um, and I think this is why it's, it's worth having conversations with our families and having this sort of shared decision-making. We as urologists, I mean, after the PSA controversy, we love shared decision-making. Um, and I think that this is another realm where, where you know, we, we have a lot of pros, we have a lot of cons. And while I agree with the American Academy of Pediatrics, the pros very slightly outweigh the cons, um, you know, it is, it is a, a conversation to be had. Um, I do think the one area where the evidence is very clear is that when performing circumcisions, the, uh, that analgesia should be used and that dorsal penile block is best. 
Um, and I also want to mention that this entire talk, I was really focusing, focusing on routine newborn male circumcision. Um, when you do have a urologic diagnosis that increases your risk of urinary tract infection, I think that, that then the benefit of circumcision in reducing that UTI risk is a lot greater. Um, and I really think that that, that is a, di a different conversation. I also think that medically complex children uh, really need to have an individualized care plan uh, that includes care of the foreskin, what is the best way to manage that for them, and that I don't think you should paint that population with a broad brush either. Okay, so now, uh, let, let's say you've talked to your family, they decide against circumcision. I do very briefly, because uh, we get so many questions about this, want to talk about care of an uncircumcised penis. Um, this is what they look like. Um, I, I, I assume everyone in this room has seen it, um, although I'm always sort of surprised um, uh, by populations who, who have it. And this is kind of a section through an uncircumcised penis. You can see the glands here. You can see the prepuce, the opening here. And you can kind of see this space right here, which is actually fused at birth. Um, so the natural history of an uncircumcised penis is that the foreskin is fused to the glands at birth, and this is appropriate. So we call this physiologic phimosis. Um, and when children are born, you clean the penis like a finger. You never forcibly retract the foreskin. Um, what you will see is you will see a lot of trapped um, uh, dead skin cells and oil um, that kind of can, can come out of that area. Um, and it looks like this, kind of this white stuff. Uh, sometimes it gets trapped under the skin and it looks sort of like sort of a ball. We call it smegma, we call it penile pearls. It is completely normal, don't worry about it, just ignore it, normal soap and water. Um, it will kind of slough off on its own. Um, the natural history of uncircumcised penis, as I said, it is fused. Uh, the foreskin is fused to the glands at birth. And then that um, fusion slowly dissolves um, until the foreskin is able to fully retract. So, so that, that's, that foreskin will fall away. This starts to happen between two and three years of age, naturally, um, when a child uses, loses their suprapubic fat pad and when they start to have more spontaneous erections. Um, and really the goal is a fully retractable foreskin by uh, adolescence or puberty. I love this slide. I wish these authors would, would um, publish this data, but this is from a meeting about a year ago. Um, and this is a, a, about a thousand children in um, Japan. And they basically, the circumcision rate is really low. They had these kids when they came in for their um, normal well-child visits. They just took a look at where things stood in terms of how much of the force can be retracted and what percent of the glands was exposed. You can see here that right around two years of age is where the glands started to expose. And you can see this very slow increase in the percent of the glands that was um, uh, visible with time. Um, certainly some children have a fully retractable foreskin by six years of age, but not all. And there is sort of this slow stretching of the foreskin, this slow um, visibility of, and, and uh, retraction of the glands. And this is, this is uh, likely the normal, uh, natural history of an uncircumcised penis. Um, in the United States, we don't have quite as much of a, um, uh, of a long history of caring for non-circumcised penis. So I think in general rule of thumb, it would be great if boys can start to retract their foreskin themselves, at least partially by about the age of five. If you go back to that slide, this is really where we would expect about 50% 50, 50 of the foreskin of the glands to be able to be exposed is right around that five to, five to six years of age. And you can see most, most of the boys really can retract 
retract retract the foreskin. Um, I like that to aim at that five range, not because it's a hard or fast cutoff, but it, that, because it then gives us time to do some sort of education with families about teaching the children to slowly stretch that foreskin. It gives us time to intervene with a steroid cream, which is very effective. Um, and it really gives us time to prevent a circumcision that may otherwise not be necessary. Um, your goal is really to uh, have boys be able to clean the glands daily with soap and water by puberty. Um, and that prevents that risk of phimosis to prevent that risk of inflammation and therefore that risk of penile cancer. Um, I'll say as a parent, getting someone, getting a child to do something once a day is almost impossible. And so I often recommend that uh, foreskin retraction be tied to toilet training. So you can kind of pull the foreskin back, urinate into a toilet, push it forward, wash your hands, and then this becomes a real habit for the child. So when they hit college and they stop showering at all for a week, they don't suddenly end up with a phimosis that they can't pull back. They're not suddenly in our emergency room in, in a lot of distress with that. Um, for more information, uh, you can look at the AAP policy statement on circumcision. Um, there have been a lot of criticisms of the statement, but I think it does a nice job of kind of going through some of the literature that's out there. They also have a nice um, webpage and a handout called Care of the Uncircumcised Penis that is a nice reference for families. And of course, you can always uh, come to us at uh, our CCMC Pediatric Urology Group, Dr. Medina, Dr. Dudley, Dr. Bernstein, uh, and myself, and of course, Dr. Dr. Hockman, who had no picture for me to show, but he is uh, more than happy to answer your uh, questions about circumcision and uncircumcised patients. Uh, so thank you very much for allowing me to come and speak. Uh, let's see if anybody